All right, everybody, listen up. We're giving you the shorthand, the cliff notes to a better life. We no longer shows leave us with less time to relax. So this show is meant to give you the information in a timely manner so you can get started on that better life right now. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. It just might change. Or, or save. That's true, or save a life. Okay, let's get into this. Listen up. Dr. Shauna Springer is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. A Harvard graduate who has become a trusted doc to our nation's military warfighters, she navigates different cultures with exceptional agility. As chief psychologist for Stella, she advances a new model for treating psychological trauma that combines biological and psychological interventions. She has a unique perceptive insights on trauma recovery, post-traumatic growth, psychological health, and interpersonal relationships developed from two decades of work at the extremes. Doc Springer's work has been featured in multiple media outlets, including NBC, Forbes, Business Insider, Military Times, Washington Post, and Psychology Today. Man, that's a mouthful. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode today. I've known Doc Springer for several years now, and I'm always... Uh, impressed. I'm always gained more insights. Uh, I think it said it best with her unique perspective, the way she breaks it down and makes it understandable. I love it. Let's dive right in. Doc, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on the show. It's great to be here with you, Jen and Tom, and um, doing such impactful work on your side with All Secure. So I'm happy to contribute. Yeah. And we absolutely love the work you're doing and the book you wrote sitting right there to your right, Warrior. Um, yeah. We love your connection to the community. We love the breakdown. And so today we're going to look to dive into post-traumatic stress in layman's terms. Yeah, Let's do it. Let's dive in. So my first question, like just the basics, if you're in combat, you could get PTS, but is that the only type of person or situation that can cause a post-traumatic stress response? Great question. So post-traumatic stress, not just for warfighters. Um, a lot of people have that image of the person who goes to combat comes back with trauma. Um, huge study done of about 4 million service members that showed that it was combat deployments are actually not very meaningfully related at all to uh, suicide attempts and other adverse outcomes. So it's actually not the combat um, that was often the biggest trauma source for even warfighters that I've served throughout the years. It was pre-military trauma from family of origin stuff that had never been addressed. Um, and warfighters are not the only ones to have trauma. Uh, military spouses have uh, their own life trauma. Sometimes they have secondary trauma because PTS is a, a family affair, unfortunately. And people have all kinds of trauma. And a lot of times we think of trauma as this big event that leaves you with this feeling of helplessness or horror. And actually, it's the small accumulation of these things that you can't see on a videotape, that nobody captures. They're invisible to everybody but the person that suffers. And those are things that can be parental neglect as well as active things that people can do to hurt each other. So we definitely need to explode the concept of PTS as a warfighter issue. It's a human issue. Can, I love you, that. can you describe to me who this won't happen to? Who's immune to this? 
um maybe androids <laughs> right like, but i want that maybe, to be clear that so like non-human you're not a commando okay. and that doesn't make you immune to these things right probably yeah. puts you right smack dab in the thing in the middle of things that can cause this but no yeah. one's immune to this and yeah, you I mean, said it's childhood stuff popping up yeah if you don't maintain an armored tank it'll break down yeah so it's really you know to your point tom it's it's anyone and what drives me up the wall is when people from outside the community that have not built trust with the community come in and do resilience trainings. <laughs> I love right? that. As though like warriors are not resilient enough. And I'm sitting there feeling like, you know, there are strongest, bravest, most resilient people. Um, if anyone suffers enough of a dose of trauma from childhood from military experiences, from relationship experiences, all through their lives, um, they will break down eventually. And so what I always counter that kind of messaging with is we're all resilient until we're not. And so we really have to approach this with a level of humility and, and humanity around the fact that everyone um, can suffer from trauma, can and will suffer from trauma in the right uh, dose. So translation, no one's immune right. to anybody. And it's not just relegated to warriors or first responders. It could, again, happen to anybody. Yes. So and it talk- will happen. Not yeah, right. And it's predictably going to happen with the right kind of trauma ex- or the wrong kind of trauma exposures over the course of a life. So with predictability then, yeah. let's go back to if it's predictable, is it preventable? To a point, to a point. Yeah. Or right. manageable. You, you, maybe maybe a different <laughs> word, manageable with okay, training. So um to some degree, you know, you heard me catch and we're tracking on the same thought. You can't prevent all of it, but with the right insights, um, and this is where really my work is really I hope to have my work leveraged for this purpose. If you give people insights into the nature of mental warfare. You can equip and inoculate them before the trauma happens. We're so good. And we invest so much money in helping warriors, operators prepare for the physical side of warfare. And what I really develop in my work and in my speaking is around the tactical analysis of mental warfare. What is the unique Achilles heel for warfighters? Why do they die by suicide? It's not, as we said, because they're not resilient enough. That's certainly not it. So what is it? that might be the unique Achilles heel. And there's some interesting vulnerabilities there for the strongest and bravest of us. Um, and then how does it develop? How do suicidal how do suicidal thoughts progress over time as people go down the tunnel of despair? <clears throat> Understanding these things gives people the ability to inoculate themselves and mitigate some of the damage. Um, but it can't always be entirely prevented because things happen to us. Uh, as part of the lives we choose and pursue and um, even beyond our control that will cause trauma response. So a lot of it is, it's not mysterious. It's not like this invisible injury. Um, It can be seen if you have the right brain scan. It can be healed with biological innovation and it can be healed and addressed with the right insights. I love that. We threw out the invisible wounds of war. It was a great catch line for a bit. And then I yeah. had a brain scan and doc, I didn't know, called me yeah. and told me who I was and how I behaved and didn't know I was yeah. even in the military. And and that's the moment we're like, well, 
You can yeah. extract your brain now. We know it's wrong. It's no longer invisible. So that likewise, excuse is gone. And likewise, they scanned my brain. No military experience, but childhood trauma, yep. uh, sexual assault trauma. And, you know, parts of my brain were inflamed in the same way Tom's were. So of course, proves that, you know, it's not just for the strong. It's not just for, you know, um, you know, the saying that we hear all the time, just shove it under the rug. It'll get better with time. I try to do that for decades. It didn't work for me. Not until well, I- But you are strong, Jen. I have to get in there a little bit on that one. You're a warrior wife. Like Tom picked you for a reason. And I know you and you are a strong person, a warrior in your own way. And you had childhood trauma and that impacted you. And a lot of warrior wives in the military community, they develop this secondary trauma and they don't feel like they're deserving of getting the best care and the right, you know, insights to help them move through it. So I just, I don't want to let that one slide because I know you and you're very, very strong and you had trauma. She's very patient. I know that. Well, strength aside, she's very, very patient with me. Um, And that's what's been helpful uh, and involved diving in and trying to understand the problems and, and, and solutions for it. So thank you for that along the way. And I'll tell you what, the warrior spouses, and we talk about secondary post-traumatic stress, we, we kind of back off sometimes on talking about these things because we talk about it all the time. So we think everybody knows about it. And then we find <laughs> out, true. we go to do, do a talk like, how many of you know about secondary post-traumatic stress? And it used to be zero hands. Now it's like two or three hands go up. And we're like, really still? You, The joke was, can I catch PTS? <laughs> you know, no, you can, you know, catch PTS. And it's the eggshell syndrome that we talk about. How do we bring awareness to this? How do we bring more awareness um, to the fact that, yes, your spouse's job affects you and you do behave differently so he doesn't behave a certain way and therefore you're doing this dance the whole time of behaving differently, not mm -hmm. to set someone off and not realizing that you're becoming somebody different? Yeah. So as we talked about, post-traumatic stress impacts the whole family. It's a family affair. Um, people do worry that they can... Uh, they're contaminated in some vague kind of way. And that, that if they talk about the things they've seen or experienced, I get this a lot with my warfighter patients. If they bring it home and talk about it with their partner, that they will contaminate their partner. There's a contagion mm -hmm. um, and it's actually the opposite. So when we do maybe a shorter format podcast in the future, we can really drill in on that, how the instinct to not share is uh, to prevent post-traumatic stress from impacting your partner. And it causes exactly the opposite of what you hope and what you can kind of do with that instead. Um, so a level of openness and communication between two people about, you know, maybe not the gory details of what each of you has experienced necessarily, but how it has impacted each of you, your identity, um, what your emotional landscape generally feels like as a result and on a given day is really critical to um, staying kind of on top of that without letting it act through you uh, where you lose volitional control. Wow. You know, I, there's so much to unpack and my brain's going, okay, which question next? I know. Um, but you had spoken about um, the secondary trauma, how it impacts, you yeah. know, um, how so many people are afraid to bring their stories and experience home, how it made them feel. In fact, at a recent retreat, um, there was a couple spouses on one side getting very upset, very, very emotional at these warfighters mm -hmm. saying, I can handle it. I can actually handle the gory details. Why won't you tell me? Why won't you let me in? And there's this hurt, this resentment. Yeah. 
And the guys finally cracked in and it wasn't, I don't think that you can't handle this. I'm afraid that after I tell you what I've done, what I've seen, that you will view me differently, that you won't love me in the same way. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's right. So there's three variants of the protective instinct that keep warfighters from sharing with their partners, their warrior wives, what's going on. Um, Part of it is what we already talked about, that fear that it will be contagious. If I tell you about the images, you're going to have the same dreams I have at night, right? Another part of the protective instinct is no dog poops in their own backyard. And so you don't want to share with your spouse anything that would change their perception of you. And again, the opposite is usually almost always true. Now, when I'm working with couples or when I was doing clinical work with couples in the community, it's important to assess whether a spouse can handle it, like would respond in a way that would be helpful. I know that you would, Jen, because you have, you know, for years, I know that Tom can share whatever, you know, about himself. Crawler can show up in your kitchen. Um, It's all part of, you know, how you receive him and are able to kind of work with that. Um, But Generally, when people begin to share, their spouses respect them more and feel like they've been brought onto the team. And without that, it's extremely hurtful because the spouse is saying, you would die for me in battle, but you would make me feel like an outsider in our marriage. How do those two things go together? So some of the work is about helping people find the right balance within that given relationship of bringing their spouse into their inner circle of trust in a way that's going to be healing for both people. How do you do that? How would you recommend if somebody is listening right now, they're like, you know what, Doc's right. I need to go home. I need to start sharing this with with my wife. Yeah. So because I can't assess each and every listener and their particular relationship, I would just share the general idea that trust in relationships is a function of the alignment between what people say and what they do. And the way that we build trust as a model in any relationship is you take a small risk and you see how it's handled. And then you work together to improve your process. Not unlike warfighters will train sequentially and incrementally for combat operations, right? Warfighters, it's so interesting, have this ability to communicate without language. You know, they're really good at communicating. And Jen, actually, you've had a front row seat on this, like nobody else I can even think of right now. As somebody that's documented their training exercises, you've really seen into uh, sort of behind the veil of how they're trained to know that that is based on hours and hours of pairing signaling small, discrete, nonverbal, subtle cues and signals, maybe words, maybe not even, so that they can, right, operate like a flock of birds that moves without a word, just knows, right? That that is earned. That comes from years and years of work and building. So in a relationship with a loved one at home, we often don't invest any energy in building that language and that communication. And so my response would be within a given relationship, you take a small risk and you see how it's handled and you process it out and you get better each time. That's how you become kind of a battle tested couple at home based on the same principles that are used to train warfighters. I mean, your your spouse knows you, right? Mm -hmm. If you've been together long enough and got married, they know you less, but 
through time, they know you. And so when you think in the end, children, people are like, well, we stayed together for the good of the kids. But you fought the whole time and the kids know, right? Everybody thinks kids don't know. They know what's going on in the home. When you finally get them old enough and you talk to them like, oh, we knew everything. And, you know, and it's, I've so had when a few we, of those conversations. You may not want to share your feelings, but you're certainly expressing them. I've never been yeah. able to hide mine. So yeah. the story that I'm not telling might be a different story that she formulates in her head and it might not be a good one. Yeah. yeah. It might be a negative version of a story. And so when the truth doesn't come out, I think that, one, you're not sharing and you're not you're not testing and you're not growing your relationship. And then two, they might build a different story without your input and it might be totally wrong and negative and against you. So we found that sharing is is definitely what needs to happen. However, and I've heard you talk about the safety, you have to be safe. You have to feel safe and protected and, and warriors feel safe overseas. I know you're trained. I know you're trained. You know I'm trained. So I'm not worried about it, but I come home and I don't know how to do that. I know warriors who feel comfortable when they're not safe. We do that all the time, but now they're home and they're safe and they don't feel comfortable. So they're sharing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm those words. Different dimensions of safety though, Tom, right. Emotional safety and physical safety, totally different, you know, um, not to a warrior who's lived that for 20 years. I mean, this is just my personal experience and, and, and the words I've talked to is, is oh, I'd rather die for you. You know, and she, she said one day yeah. you live for me yeah. and I'm like, yeah. Oh, what a pro what a concept. I've never, even yeah. I'm like, dude, you die for, you die for anyone, you know, and That's exactly. because yeah. I'm trained. And so we try to connect those two. I felt safe because I was trained and my bros to the left and right were trained. So I would be safe at home with other training, not help. I need help. No, I need more training, relationship training. So I feel yeah. safer at home with my battle buddy now with the tools given, you know, from yeah. people like you. So, yeah. and that, that rolls right into when I hear people talk about, I don't want to talk to one of your coaches unless they've been to combat because they won't understand me. And I, and I joke yeah. with back, yeah, yeah. I don't want to talk to you either unless you've yeah. gone to school for six to eight years because you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you don't want to have me in the foxhole of actual warfare. Me neither. Like, that's not a good choice, but <laughs> mental warfare, I can I can support and help. Let me go back to a couple of things you said, though, Tom, because there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I, I want to highlight actually and accentuate something you said three minutes ago. If you don't tell your wife enough, your spouse, your significant other, your partner, if you don't read them in on your mental landscape, they will come to the wrong conclusion that it's their fault and it's about them. More often. percent. <laughs> like that's how, and, and kids do the same. Yep. So when you see like any, this is civilians and war fighters. This is a human principle. When a couple divorces, if you don't handle it proactively in the right way, the kids will decide it's because they were bad kids. That's what kids do. That's what spouses do. Why do we do that? Maybe because if we feel responsible, we feel a sense of control, potentially perceived control. Like I could have done something different, or maybe I can change something and my next relationship won't end in divorce. We don't like the feeling of being totally out of control where it's, you know, nothing related to us. So we do make the narrative typically about ourselves. So that's a really critical point. Um, Gosh, there's like so many other things. Emotional safety, physical safety, to your point, very different constructs. We're actually saying the same thing. It sounded like we weren't there for a second, but we're actually saying the same thing. So warfighters will say, I would rather go into a firefight any day of the week than tell my wife that I need her and I love her. (laughs) 
Yeah. It seems easier because we've been beaten into us and trained for so long. It's yeah. just, it's just easier and, yeah. and stressful at home. It's, it's uh, not that it's not stressful in combat, but it's more stressful at home because I've not been trained in it. And you I haven't built that muscle. Right. And that muscle takes time and proactive, intentional work. And so that's kind of the whole line of where, you know, relationships need to be understood. Those insights need to be developed. Um, I actually had a conversation with the Pillar Foundation. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but I may do some trainings for um, Navy Special Warfare spouses. I'm hoping to work with them a little bit and do some trainings and, you know, would love to do more of that work. Some of the things I want to do would be with couples, like how to have a good fight without yes. you know, the one you love, right? Never, I don't, we just don't fight, though. We just choose not to fight, right? <laughs> We're perfect. We never oh, fight. yeah. Okay. And talking to the one couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they never the had marital conflict. Things got <laughs> we, extremely better once we had rules of engagement. Let's just say. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. Exactly. You need to fight. Yeah, you know, 100%. You, you, you will. Part of how we grow. You're, you're just going to. We've had people call us, oh, we blew it two weeks after your retreat. We got in a big old fight. I'm like, congratulations, you're married. I, we didn't say it was ending. Yeah. yeah. We, here's some tools to not make it go crazy, you know, and practice those yeah. so back to stage one and start over. It's it's the expectations that, that people have of being perfect again. That well, no one's ever been about perfect. That. How easy. So this. This road to recovery, somebody's like, yep, I can identify. I have PTS. I understand it's a biological response. I can't shove yep. it under the rug. And then they go into the next thing. How do I get rid of this thing? And how quick can I make it go away? Now that I know, now that I'm aware. Well, 10 years ago, I would have said it's going to be a very long course of therapy. So get ready for the grind because we've got work to do. Um, now, the three of us know that the best model of care is to combine the right insights that are on point and culturally competent with the right biological intervention. So for me, you know, Stella ganglion block or dual yes. sympathetic reset um, as we're doing at Stella and using that potentially ketamine for some individuals as well to give people a window of opportunity where they can do the work becomes critical. And then giving them the right insights and the right support um, from a trusted doc is the other part. They still have to do the work, in other words, but um, the biological part is really important because nowhere else in medicine, this is such another disconnect for me, that people have always thought about stellate ganglion block as a kind of last resort intervention, except in special forces where it's used as a go-to intervention, as we all know, between combat deployments to kind of help people reset. Everywhere else in the medical field, it's kind of been used as, well, if other treatments don't work. I'm writing an article for military neurorehabilitation right now at the invitation of a retired colonel about how we need to rethink this and really sequencing SGB first becomes critical. Because especially for warfighters, like the thing that's intolerable for warfighters is the feeling of helplessness, like losing volitional control of your own body when you've trained to control in chaotic situations is really a problem. And so restoring calm and control in the body is so critical for being able to do the work of other therapeutic interventions. It, it was critical to me. Yeah. Because of the zero to rage moments. Yeah. 
I lived in a six, not a one. Yeah. You know, where people live and then they go to three and five and ah, I lived in a six. So, Seven or eight. Okay. Maybe. So when you <laughs> yeah. bumped me with something, yeah. I went straight to 11 and yeah, it helped me start in a place where I could see it, you know, instead of yeah. rage, I'm blind. It's emotions. They're not going to make sense. I'm going right. to, I'm going to win. My, my goal now is to win me, not the relationship, but me. So I will fight yeah. and I will hurt. Annihilate the threat. Yep. And then, woman and then, you love, right? I'm sorry. I'm ashamed and I'm in my Fair cycle bit. and I want to die. And, oh, and it's, and then I got to come back and start over. Uh, yeah. The dual sympathetic reset for me was amazing. Instant. It wasn't the shot that cured everything. It wasn't the one, you yeah. know, Americans want it now and done. I want it now and done so I can move on. You know, it's time invested. And, and yeah. basically that day, Jen noticed the differences and just started pointing them out to me. That day, that day of things that I would normally have done. Yeah. And I realized, wow, I'm in a place where I can get to work now. Yeah. Argue I mean, about it. You guys have done the work, though. I mean, I know because I had pre-read Arsenal of Hope and like I know your book, you know, that you wrote, Jen, with Holly, and you've done the work around, you know, what is this aspect of your husband, of Tom, your warfighter husband, who has a different personality, you know, who does he need to be in combat scenarios, and when does that person, crawler, come into the kitchen, you know, and how do you kind of navigate that? So what the SGB allows, or the DSR allows is what Marines call the restoration of the OODA loop. So that ability to like step back and like respond rather than react without volitional control. That is really critical. And it turns out that, you know, and I'm not saying that you became suicidal here, Tom, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just saying my warfighter patience, that piece about I can't control this and I am lashing out at the woman I love I am lashing out at my kids. They're scared of me is directly related to suicidal distress for many of the warfighters I know. That's a unique vulnerability for this population because they're protectors and defenders. If they perceive themselves as being the threat to their family's future well-being or safety, that's a pretty short skip and a hop to a really dangerous place. I'm it's, so glad you brought that up. Literally, my note right here says family incidents and suicide, because always. that's what, yeah. you know, that's what we hear. It's I think the yeah. the the public and then it spills into the community, actually, is the the guy under the bridge from Vietnam is the guy with PTS. The guy who um, takes his own life is somebody who's weak um, and they can't get over the combat um, situation. Yet ninety nine point nine percent of the warfighters I have talked to. Their suicidal attempt came right after a family incident, a fight with a child, a fight with a spouse, spouse saying, I'm getting divorced, um, putting their hands on a loved one, immediately regretting it, um, tired of yeah. the anger. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's really important. People have this idea that our warfighters are taking their lives because of combat when that's not what we're seeing at all. No. An embarrassment for me. It was it was shame, yeah. embarrassment, and well, my yeah. job here is done, you know, so yeah. Everything else is embarrassing and shameful. Yeah, as I kind of unpacked in Warrior, yeah. uh, shame, survivor guilt, uh, moral injury, they're all more closely related to suicide attempts than combat trauma. And family incidents uh, are centrally tied 
to suicide attempts from many of the warfighters I've supported, just as just as you described, Jen. You know, that loop of, um, you know, I've done something that's made me the threat to my family's future safety or well-being, and I'm the problem. And so when warfighters see a threat, they put that threat in the crosshairs and they close with it. That's a very dangerous thing. There's not a lot of time between I'm the threat and am I going to do something about the threat for, for many warfighters. So upriver prevention, which everybody talks about, but often you, know, you kind of say, what does that actually mean? Um, let's hold ourselves accountable for what does that actually mean? It means really equipping people with the right insights and the right tools. Because to go back to an earlier point, yes, people will fight two weeks after a retreat. That's fine. But there's a big difference between productive conflict that helps grow trust, helps you grow in your relationship, and destructive conflict that hacks the roots of trust out from underneath the relationship and leaves both people feeling less safe and less connected. Those are really different things. And so people need to have those insights about rules of engagement um, and how do you navigate conflict to to get there. Your book is certainly a great resource for that of diving in. I tell all the spouses, arm yourself with information, understand what's going on because I took it deeply personal. I isolated myself. I was completely lost, frustrated, confused. I was starting to ask Tom's friends, the other warrior wives, like, is there a manual for this? Is there a book for this? I don't understand it. Um, and it it was tearing us apart because both of us, um, we weren't communicating in a way that um, was helpful. Like you said, it wasn't constructive. It was he was trying to win or I was trying to win. And the relationship yeah. 100% was losing. Do you have a tip for people yeah. listening right now going, okay, you know what? Yeah. That's right. Beyond Warrior, uh, which yeah. is a fantastic book. Is there another resource that people can maybe look into today? Yes, I have a manual. Um, <laughs> definitely. So so warrior, you know, it really is more about the warrior psychology uh, yeah. around moral injury, survivor guilt. There's a, a chapter on relationships. But in 2019, with Jason Roncaroni, I wrote a 400-page um, transition manual called Beyond the Military. Yeah. And the third part of that manual is 80 pages dedicated to understanding relationships in the community of the military and how we navigate conflict, and how we can come through transition, which is a really high risk time for relationships in a way that keeps the relationship intact and may actually help people become stronger as a couple. So that book, you know, it's a 400 page transition manual, but there's 80 pages at the end of that book that's really the deep dive. And it includes exercises and a lot of people, you know, have never heard about that book because it's just, there's a lot of things out there and it's hard to kind of like get things noticed, but that is the resource that Jason and I wrote um, around transition and and military relationships. We'll drop that in the notes um, as well. For sure. You know, going back to, I know I felt like her protector and then I, when I became her attacker, and yeah. the protector at the same time. It's it's very shameful and confusing. Yeah. And I wanted her to understand so much, but I didn't want to tell my story. I didn't want to tell her some stories. And it took me, uh, uh, maybe I shared one with her months ago that I'd never shared with her, which kind of, she's like, whoa, I thought it'd be a lot worse. You'd waited this long to tell me that. Hmm. We tell a lot of people that you don't have to tell your story. Like, I'm not going to share it. She'll judge me this and that. And they don't want the judgment. They don't want to be, um, well, they just don't want to repeat it. 
but they want to get better. So we tell them, well, then tell us how you feel. That's, I mean, that's really what you need to do is tell us how you feel now. That's why you don't need uh, a counselor that's, that's been to combat because they, they don't need to tell you about combat. They need to tell you about your feelings now and how to manage this and how to, how to work through that. So how can we get them to understand it? What's, is it important to share your story so much or is it important more to share how it's affecting you and how you feel? It's a good question. And it depends on the person. Some people really need to share their story with some of my warfighter patients and their spouses because their spouses have their own traumas from childhood. If they feel in control and able to stay calm in their own bodies while sharing their story, it can be really therapeutic for people to share with freedom and total liberation, all of the details with a trusted person that can walk you through that valley. If you don't have somebody that you trust or it doesn't help you feel in control of your trauma to share the story, like if all that happens is you get jacked up and you stay jacked up or you're so afraid of what your partner will think of you, it's still important to share, um, to your point, the emotional landscape that you're walking without sharing details of the story. And so if you're working towards trust with a therapist, sometimes you can do it just as in any relationship, sequentially based on how they respond. So maybe you share what you feel about something and see how they respond to it. If they're not shocked and you know they respond in a really helpful way, then maybe you take another small risk and share a piece of your story see how they respond to it. Same thing goes in any relationship is it doesn't have to be this like rip off the bandaid all or nothing. I'm going to go full open kimono with you, you know, and share everything that I've ever experienced. It can be a progressive process that builds trust in any relationship, whether with a spouse or a doc. For the individual, like say mm-hmm. me, when I started sharing my story became cathartic for me. Yeah. On stage. And then yeah. it got it got mundane for me. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. And then I almost killed myself. And then I you know, I did went over here and did this. So there was no emotion to it. So I had felt that there was healing with it. And then that went away for a bit. And then um we started doing our own types of podcasts and talking mm-hmm. about feelings and, and relationships and not the combat story stuff. But people still call and want me on and uh, and ask to talk about Somalia and other things. And she's like, I don't know if you should do it. And I'm like, oh, we've been doing this for a long time. And I did it. And of course, I don't notice. I'm a mm. grumpy bear after this for a couple of days now, you know? And it, yeah. yeah. Really. Is this well. something that always will be? Um, I mean, I've got a lot of tools. I've been doing a lot of work and I still have a long way to go. And I know that. But yeah, I don't want to become grumpy every time someone asked, asked me to share my story because I want to help people with that story. Yeah. I think I would say have control over it to the most degree possible in that case. So if you're sharing because somebody asks you and you not you haven't quite prepped for it and you're not really like able to say what's a ramp up to sharing that feels right for me, that can make you pretty grumpy to feel out of control, like you've been overexposed versus, okay, I have a story I want to share in Somalia. Then you say, who is the person? Probably it's Jen or one of your military brothers that you trust with your life. Who is the person that I want to start with this story? I want to share a story with this person in this environment, in this relationship context. 
and then kind of build from there, as opposed to I would not usually advocate sharing a new story with a new group or a group or a person that you have low trust with. That'll make you really grumpy. Great advice. You know, um, I know we're going to get into with Doc. We're going to have Doc back on. She's amazing. And we'll dive into some of these subjects and a little bit deeper, um, more in depth. But I do want to touch on anger. It's the number one reason folks reach out to us. Um, they are so tired yeah. of being angry all the time. Yeah. There's no understanding why. Like I'll have a guy call and he's like, I freaked out at the post office. Yeah. You know, I freaked out here. And he's like, or I freaked out on my kids and I want to stop yeah. it. The question always is, why am I so angry? How would you? Yeah. Why am I so angry? So first thing I'd want to say is that that anger response is a predictable outcome of a fight or flight system that's locked into chronic threat response. Mm -hmm. So when you're like a muscle car and you can't throttle down, part of that core set of symptoms, the challenges you're going to have includes these surges and irritability. Now, here's something really interesting that you guys might not know. Maybe you do, but I'd be surprised. So Steli Ganglion Block that Lipov published on, he treated you, Dr. Lipov, with the dual sympathetic reset, actually came out of some of the work he did with hot flashes. Now, when I learned about that, I, I thought, well, that really makes sense because my male warfighter patients get hot flashes all the time. What it is, it's not like the, you know, I'm a fireball. <laughs> yeah, I'm a yeah. fireball. So. Really? Yeah. I'd be sitting in my office with them and I could feel the heat, <laughs> like yes. you know, right? It's like, it hits you like a wall and they would get all sort of red, um, yes. <laughs> right? And then the intensity comes and it's like, oh, they're having the male variant of hot flashes. And wow. so it turns out DSR can treat that. By restoring calm and control to the system. So the the really important thing around anger is for anyone who listens to know that it's not who you are. It's not, it doesn't signify your core uh, values or your personality. We're talking about no control over one of the biological injuries related to trauma that you need treatment for that you need a biological treatment to address. And aside from that, I mean, we can do a lot of work, anger management, but I'd much rather share those insights to help people gain control when they're not fighting a tide of adrenaline based on their own hot flashes. So to me, that's a really good example of how the dual sympathetic reset is the stabilization of that, the sort of medical part of treating that. And then the psychological part which is really in that beyond the military really go into here's how you have a good fight. Here's how you manage your own rage, right. Without hurting the one you love. Um, That's the other piece of it is you put those two together, the body control and the insights and people are going to have a very different outcome. And then they come home and they're a little bit different. This took some time with Tom and I as well, 10 years together he uh his fight fight or fright goes goes a little bit quiet he's becoming calmer he starts going into some intense therapy after he had sgb um and his response was different the anger started yeah. going away the rage was gone um anger is normal you know but he he would get upset and say like oh, i am sorry i got really angry i'm like i'm really pissed right now too the situation caused both of us to get angry yeah. you know that's normal it's okay yeah um but as a spouse my 
muscle memory was, oh shit, here comes, he's going to get angry about the cup and the yeah. or something. So I started reacting before he would even come yeah. in the room. I'd hear his footsteps come in and I'm like, oh, you know, so I think it's important for spouses to realize as your warrior's healing, there's some yeah. work that you have to do with understanding your own response, my own response to Tom. Absolutely, Jen. I mean, that's all part of recalibrating. As they change, you have to change with them. Because what you're talking about is kind of a, a non, um, it's outside of your volitional control initially, right? Okay. That you have that reaction to just his footsteps. It's based on something. It's based on a pattern of past interactions. Your body's trying to defend you. It's trying to adapt by preparing you for a fight, right? But maybe you don't need to be coiled tight, ready to fight or protect yourself or run away because Tom has changed because of the work he did and the biological treatment he received. But that's a very common form of, you know, secondary trauma is you can't love and live with somebody who has trauma, who bolts awake in the middle of the night, sweating, who has the male version of hot flashes who has rage attacks and not have trauma response. It's just, I don't know how that would even look. So I agree. I love that. We're sort of normalizing these experiences. So many people feel alone, isolated in them. Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm the only one. I'm like still to this day. We think this it's confusing and shocking to me, but we keep going on about, Oh, I don't want to, I thought I was the only one. I'm like, do you listen to anything? Have you listened to anything anyone said in the last five to 10 years about you're not alone? We all struggle. How can we sell this? Um, we, we, we try, we do all the time. And I, we get all this, I'm not, then I don't know. And, and, and I try to tell people you didn't win the war alone. It wasn't just you as an operator running around doing all the jobs. You had doctors, you had psychs, you had, you know, mechanics, cooks, everybody that does every job contributed. So yeah. you're not, expected to win this war out here alone so we yeah. stopped we've stopped calling it help and i say you guys need who needs training who needs some training on this or that because the word help makes me feel weak and inferior so we're just changing words out here to try to get people to start just start you know the fear of starting and because change and transition are always hard but how do we sell this to the commandos to get them to realize this isn't going to hurt you? It's not going to make you softer. You know, your your switch isn't going to be turned off. I tell people, <laughs> yeah. guys like, well, I got to go back to, you know, I got to deploy, so I'm not going to get the shot. I'm like, let me tell you about the shot. It's not going to make you lay behind a car or getting shot at and, and lean out. Go, I don't want to shoot you. I really don't. So stop, please. <laughs> okay. You've been trained to do those other things. Your switch is right back on. All right. We want that switch off when you don't need it on, but uh, it, it doesn't hold the switch in the off position. So let's try to sell this from your perspective of the words with yeah. all these excuses as to why I don't want to lose my edge. I don't want to become soft. That's why I'm not doing the dual sympathetic reset. All right. I won't do therapy or anything. else. I won't do therapy because edge. she doesn't understand combat or, oh, oh, if it's a woman, she won't get me. I'm yeah. like, man, you're running the list, you know, <laughs> they're actually going to take the easy path of avoidance. Um, it's much harder path to actually right. address head on what's going on with you. And that's the warrior's way. Now, here's an interesting difference, and there's a lot in there, so I don't want to miss it. Marines that I work with and people in the community, operators, very different culture there. One of the most unfortunate ad campaigns was the Army of One ad campaign, right? Here I am. You know where I'm going with this, right? It's uh, in the, the Special Forces community, there's this like 
special ethos of like the sole operator, you know, and you know, that's not true. You just called that out as a big fat lie around how many people are needed to support an effective operation and an operator, including um, people outside of the soft community. You know, I grant that I'm an unlikely, (laughs) unlikely source of wisdom. Yeah. Right. I've never served in combat, you know, like I'm a, a female non-military psychologist, but for whatever reason, this ended up being my calling and I've been trusted by enough warfighters that I have a landscape view on mental warfare. So it's really not the truth that, you know, you're an army of one and, and yet this persists, but it doesn't persist with Marines. So this is interesting. So um, I'm going to challenge operators at the risk of insulting them just a tiny bit to be a little more like Marines in this case. Marines know that the genius of a Marine is not in how he or she operates in the combat theater as an entity of one, but in how they sync up in their fire teams to become something much greater than they can be by themselves. And because they train in fire teams and they have this camaraderie, this like really important joint ethos as they go into warfare, it translates better. When I come in as a trusted doc, they accept and receive that I may have something for them that will help get them equipped for mental warfare, and they're more open to it. There's a lot less deflection in terms of taking the easy path of avoiding it because you you know won't talk to somebody who hasn't served or you know the, the other piece I don't want to miss is uh, we know from special forces research that the dual sympathetic reset actually optimizes neurocognitive performance and reaction time. So it won't block or numb anybody. It's used by elite athletes to improve their performance and by operators to improve you know, operational performance in theater. So that's established research within the, the population um, of special forces operators. So it won't block you, won't numb you. It actually can give you your edge back. Um, and just like we were talking about, give you that ability to respond instead of always reacting outside of your own control. And let me tell you one thing, the army would not pay for it if it made you soft and weak and not able to yeah. do your job. Yeah. They're all on board. They, so. they don't want to pay for anything if they don't have to. That's for <laughs> Yeah, sure. I was going to say, is the army willing to pay for, yes. for this for all that need it? You know, I, I, it seems like no. it should just be they'll part of the leg. Yes, they'll pay. Yeah, for I know. I know. It seems like, like the problem is actually, you know, we need a little bit more willingness to to actually fund what what saves and changes lives here. Percent. Here's here's the excuse you're going to hear from non-Marines, right? Well, they eat crayons, ha 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 ha, or they're not as special as we are. Oh, or they're so you're going to get back and forth. And I would take it back to, but you're all humans. Yep. You're all biologically the same. I don't care what uniform you put on on the outside and what jokes you have on and you use against each other. You're still human beings and you're going to react. Ultimately on the same dang team. Yeah, yeah. By on. the way, we work for the same guy. The U.S. military. So I, right. I don't that that rivalry that is fun also keeps us yeah. separated. And it's sad. It, it, it's it, really sad. You are the right message source for that, Tom, not me to um, speak to your brothers and sisters in the community about that and challenge them in just that way. But I would add this, that, you know, even within the community, optimizing performance is a a very valued goal. And the dual sympathetic reset plus the right insights on mental warfare, that will optimize you. It will equip you. 
and it will remove the feeling of helplessness that warriors have had for way too long around the suicide loss of their brothers and sisters and the own their own risk, which is often in their blind spot. So that's where I could come in and, and resource with the training and speaking and things. I actually spent a good deal of this year developing a two-hour suicide prevention training I'm really excited about that I want to replace the conventional approach which doesn't work well for the community. Yeah, obviously, obviously it doesn't work. It's not well. working. You know, uh, that's exciting. I'd love to tell people the, the connections. Um, uh, Did you forget? I love it. I love my brain. That's okay. I got I love you. PBI. I've it got works it. so well within my head. Yeah, I'll think of it in a minute. I love uh, Doc and I, you know, I follow you and I, uh, I saw a quote this morning online and I'm like, I'm going to ask Doc about this because mm-hmm. it's Renee Brown. We know her work well. She says, if you trade in your authenticity for safety, you may experience the following anxiety, depression, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. Sounds a lot like PTS to me. Um, And so I was interested to ask you about how much does authenticity um, and imposter syndrome is huge in this community. We know that Tom speaks about it often where he never felt good enough perfectionist, perfection-driven, hypervigilance. And now I'm a bigger loser. (laughs) And then he feels inauthentic, actually, in that. So does your own ego and sense of self get tampered with with PTS? Definitely, definitely. PTS will reach right into your soul and take everything if you let it. Um, And the nature of the warfighter's path is to hold two different worlds in tension continually, which creates splits. So just the kinds of splits that you've written about in Arsenal of Hope um, are actually, they're not pathological, they're totally predictable, um, that people have kind of a warfighter persona versus the persona of the husband and, you know, father that comes home, right? And so holding these two different worlds in tension is really important. What does authenticity look like? Well, you might have authenticity in two different worlds, right? And it might be a little bit different, and that's okay, But a lot of the work that you have to do as a warfighter is to work towards integration. It's really hard to get there to like a fully successful integration for any of us. I'm talking about people, not just warfighters. Integrating all the aspects of the self can take a lifetime and and most of us will just never get there. But to, to feel like you have the same core set of values that are a North Star that you act on, and you have genuine, positive, loving connection is a huge deterrent to all kinds of negative outcomes and loss of your potential and just a life that's, that's uh, you know, in pastel or gray. Mm. Man. I, I, I remember my point. There, it's back, back. to the stellar shot. <laughs> sure. Taking away versus uh, actually increasing and improving. Yeah. It's all marketing, right? How do you market that pill? Here's a warrior shot. It's going to improve your ability to be a better warrior. Everybody yep. will line up to take it, right? But we're Heck selling yeah. it as help. After yeah. that, and people are like, I don't, I don't need help. I don't need that. I'm not getting a shot in my neck. Um, so it's it's all about marketing. We change our marketing. You know, we we do a speech to warriors, and they would trickle in. You know, and it was all about post traumatic stress and relationships. It was called PTS resilience. PTS training. resiliency training, and 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 <laughs> oh boy, crickets in the I didn't room. even want to go to it. Crickets in the room, and then we changed the name to uh, you know the, from the battlefield. the battlefield to the bedroom, conquering conquering the battlefield to the bedroom. And, the and man, the room was packed. And I, yeah, the, right. The stage was, aren't you fools? Because we're doing the same speech we always did. We just changed the title, and it doesn't. <laughs> And they're like, huh? 
And they all stayed and listened to the same story, but with a different mindset coming in and took a whole nother thing out. Took that whole shame word PTS out. You know, yeah, lead the charge. You guys are you're 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 on it. (laughs) You see what needs to happen. Um, DSR, it's a shot for warriors. It'll improve your functioning. It'll improve your relationships. Um, do it for your wife. Do yes, it for your, I, kids. your kids. I, I literally used the hot flash thing the other day to get to convince somebody to help get the whole process moving. But literally, I did not know about that. Literally used that one. Um, and, and makes so much sense. You know, the story was and going on and on. And I'm like, well, you know, this helps with that. And they're like, what? All right, I'm signing up. I'm like, there we go. Got a couple going now, just for whatever reason. But they both needed it anyway. So you no, know, I got an SGB um, for sleep. I kept hearing my patients say, I haven't gotten such good sleep in years and years. I don't have PTSD. Like the stellar ganglion block is not a shot for people with PTSD. Perfect. Maybe it can be helpful if you have PTSD. You know, it certainly can target those symptoms, but it's for people who have the target symptoms. What are the target symptoms? Disrupted sleep, constant hypervigilance. Um, startle response. When someone walks up behind you, you hear a loud sound, the irritability or surges in anger, panic attacks or anxiety surges and difficulties concentrating. Those are the hyperarousal symptoms that SGB or DSR targets. So I got an SGB going on maybe two years ago for sleep. And I track my sleep on the Fitbit and it got so much better. And I felt like I was getting rest for the first time since I had my kids who I think disrupted my circadian rhythms yeah. and I love them and it was worth it, but I've never, you know, yeah. Since having the kids and being <clears throat> ripped out of sleep to like feed them every night, uh, that was a change for me in my sleep quality, definite change that DSR helped to correct. So I think it's it's people being brave, and that is why I shared that I, I got the treatment myself, and it was helpful because, <clears throat> excuse me, I no longer am okay with the world being divided into patients and healers. We're all people, you know, and there's a great deal of professional pride among people like myself about we provide care, right, but we're not affected. It's a variant of the kind of professional pride that you see in the community. And I think we need to move past that at this point. And so sharing your stories as leaders in the community, I share my story whenever I can to show that, yes, you know, this can be helpful for people, even if you don't have post-traumatic stress disorder, don't meet all the criteria. If you have something this can treat, it can optimize your functioning and give you a better quality of life. Wow. No reason not to, really. I mean, I've recommended it to a ton of my civilian friends for a multitude of reasons, anxiety, um, you know, people, again, who say, well, I don't have PTS like your husband does because I never served overseas. And then, you know, I asked my friend, "Okay, well, your husband and my husband sound pretty much the same. A lot of the same issues. (laughs) What happened? And she said, well, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, somebody was um, a, a garbage truck driver ran over a 10 year old and he was the one that went to this girl, Mm -hmm. tried to save her life. She died in his arms. And I said, that'll do it. You know, like it's not just still people think like that's not for me. So in spouses, what I hear is I didn't go to combat. How could I have secondary PTS? Most still don't even know that's a thing, truly. Um, But, you know, 
how can me and my kids have it? And then a lot of times what I'll hear from the operators is, yeah, you have no idea what I've been through to the spouse. You have no idea. You can never know. They don't know. So there's this divide almost in the household of, um, and then shame also accompanies that. We talk to folks and warriors and I'm really careful about inducing shame of, man, you know, I, I caused this in my wife and my kids. Like they have anxiety because of me. They're not sleeping because of me. They know what's going on in the home. Is there yeah. a way that um, you could speak to that just about? Sure. Yeah. And you're right. You're right to look out for this piece about shame because it's it's such a prevalent thing in households where there's trauma, unaddressed trauma. I mean, I think the message really needs to be that trauma affects everyone in the family. And if you think that it doesn't, it means that you're saying that you don't really feel like anybody really loves you because if they love you, they're absolutely going to be feeling what you're feeling, empathizing, concerned about it. And to the degree that you don't let them in, their anxiety will skyrocket. And, you know, they are affected by all of this. They want you to, to heal and get your, get your concerns addressed and they need their own concerns addressed. Um, for the reason of having secondary PTS. Jen, we did a, a interview, you and me, like yes. a year or two ago, and you gave a really um, straight kind of like um, call to action to spouses about how much secondary effects um, of PTSD can impact spouses and that they deserve care. Could I invite you to share that here for people who are listening? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the most important things is that like Tom and you and I have all said this, we're all humans. We all have a variation of experiences, stress and uh, trauma affects each of us differently. And as soon as we bring judgment into this process, we're 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 doing harm to all in this process. So your journey is unique to you. Your healing is unique to you. Um, and you are absolutely 100 percent deserving of healing, no matter the source of the pain where it, where it came from. Um, you know, our, our warrior spouses are some of the most remarkable people I have ever met. Truly. I have been so blessed to call some of these women friends now. And I know so many of them hate the term resiliency and I've heard it over and over again. Please don't call us resilient. Um, you know, we've been put into Don't try to train us to be resilient when we already are. We already are, you know, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, our, Our warrior wives are the backbone. They carry so much strength, um, so much of what our warfighter says, I couldn't have done it without them. I Mm -hmm. didn't have wanted to go overseas and not known that I had a loving uh, wife and children back at home, whether they express that or not. So, you know, make sure if you're listening to this, your spouse, that you're also taking care of yourself and that you know that you're worthy and absolutely deserving of this type of healing, too. Yeah. Tom, what would you say to the spouses? Because you're both the best source for this message. I would say to the spouses, number one, always be safe. Right. If you don't feel safe, get safe. Right. Too many people worry about, I don't want to set him off or I don't want to leave because if you have to leave, you have to leave. Be safe. Mm -hmm. Always be safe. Number one. Number two, be patient and dive in. Right. You can't force self-awareness on someone like me. You can't you can't overlove someone like me, but you being patient and understanding that 
the excitement that you have when you see someone getting better. Like when I'm getting better, it almost got worse because I'm getting better. <laughs> she yeah. got excited. Do this now. Now do that. Okay, now do that. You're getting better. <laughs> and then and I'm like, another thing, another thing, another thing. I'm I'm never gonna get better. There's always gonna be another thing. And I started getting pissed. Like I'm I'm just always gonna be broken. So we have to be careful of the messages of the excitement and you have to be patient. And the words have to be diligent and and and, and open your eyes to self-awareness. Right. If you don't, if you're not self-aware and someone's telling you you have a problem and you're like, no, I don't. I mean, think about it. All right. If it's your spouse telling you you have a problem. And you're denying it, I think you should pause and consider it a little bit versus being uh, in denial of how perfect you how perfect you think you are. Yeah. But the spouses need to be patient. Um, but dive in and study things. Right. It's not your mission. Your mission is the relationship. Your mission is 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 your your spouse as well. But I've found that if they don't want the help, my best friends, some of my closest mates, you know, yeah. if you don't want it, you can't give it to them. Yeah. They can read all they want. They're going to tune it out. They have to reach out and ask. That's, that's like I, we don't cold call because, well, we tried mm -hmm. out of excitement and it doesn't turn out well. So mostly. <laughs> no, did not. But the person has to want it. Yeah. You know, and maybe, maybe. Have to be willing to do the work. Like, Yes. Yeah, they have to consider That's how hard. long will I be in this relationship? How long am I willing to wait? And is there a timeline I'm going to give you that you need to start? You know, that's that's a relationship issue that people need to think about versus feeling trapped or staying in something that turns out violent or, you know, horrible. Let me ask you guys about something. I heard a statistic from someone recently. I don't know if it's true, but it was 80 to 90 percent of um divorces and uh, marriages in the community end in divorce. And the reason why nobody really publishes on this is because the military doesn't track this after people transition out of the military. And that's when people are getting divorced. Now, I know it's a huge high risk time for divorce yes. during and in the years following military transition. Does that number seem completely out of whack with the the landscape view you guys have of these I, marriages. I'm glad you brought that up. Could uh, that be? I actually. There was a whole event we had with this. <laughs> oh, whole event. A whole event. With generals and special General, operations yes. we had with this. What Jen had with this. Well, here's the thing. I have no fear with them because what are they going to do? Fire me? You know, it's just I. <laughs> you already brought us in to talk. You brought us in to talk. Everyone else is sitting around them saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I'm like, actually, that's not true at all. Um, even had a general tell me one time that transition had nothing to do with the suicide rate. So, so with all oh. due respect, sir, you're still in and you've never transitioned and clearly yeah. that topic. So the divorce <laughs> thing, um, I think is really, really critical to look at. So when we started looking at research, you and I, and Tom just talked about it, family incidences yeah. are the leading cause of suicide in this community, not combat, yeah. not thinking about Iraq. It's that I know issue. So we know this. So yeah. I asked SOCOM, I asked all of them, hey, I need to see your divorce statistics so that we could start looking into this. You want to address suicide, you have to look at the family unit and what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I called my friend Kaylee Lehman over at MSOF C, Miss Reese. Yeah, yeah. You actually and talked said, about it uh, in, during that day. I you, did. She threw out a number of divorce, which is your numbers. Um, and and he, he declined. No, yeah. no, no. That's not our number. She goes, what are your numbers? And he's like, I'll get my. They even have the numbers. I mean, they don't We've really track call. people. 
we got After a phone out, call. So. Five days later, they called us. We're out on a drive on okay. a Friday evening. 7.30. So okay. it's 8.30 East Coast time. Where are those numbers? You have the colonel. Where are those numbers you have? We're all we're in our office. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, tell them to stand down. You don't have numbers, man. You guys have been looking for numbers for a week and you don't keep them. And Here's where you get the numbers from the people who are tracking this. Like, what deployment was it? You know, how what long were they service? in? What branch of service? You know, and, and the numbers you'll find are weird. Like the highest divorce rates are in the service you wouldn't even think of. Air Force. And the lowest being in the Marines, Marines. which you would consider the opposite. So they don't know their numbers um, because then they but they refute your numbers, which caused a big tizzy. And so now they might start tracking it. But you know what? If you track negative numbers and they know they're negative. Is Kaylee or MSOF tracking them? Like we need somebody on the other side of things to track this to get a really accurate figure. And it's, you know, the data that she's already provided me. And we've had conversations. Actually, I called her right after I left the general. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I. Give me those numbers again. And she and I were talking through it. And um, she's like, it's so complicated. And it's difficult because in the military community, there's often multiple divorces. So are we looking at the first divorce, the second divorce, the third? Yeah, divorce? right. You know, the what she has found, though, in special operations is the highest level divorce, um, I believe, is after the fourth or fifth deployment. They see that there is a huge change in the individual. And then when I talk to spouses, most often I will hear after the third or fourth deployment, he came back different. So I know that there's something there in that in that special operations, um, three to four to five deployments is a high level. So of- maybe that's when people hit the tipping point in terms of cumulative stress or allostatic load. That's what I would guess. And, and, so- and what would I turn to? I would turn to what I'm most comfortable in. I, I'd much rather get a divorce or, you know, than to, yeah. lose, to lose my job, to lose something I worked so hard for, not even thinking. Right hard for my relationship, you know, which I probably right. didn't work hard for. So I do lean towards what I put effort into my whole life. I did every, every story I get is from guys who, well, look at all the work I did, man. Look, I had to, I had to go this far and do this much effort. And I'm thinking you didn't put that much effort into your relationship. So sure. You're going to stick with the thing you put the most effort into, I guess, huh? Well, so people need to consider that, that, oh, you're not putting effort into your relationship or you wouldn't just throw it away. I'm sure Doc has seen this as as well as the community and the type of um, culture that can exist. Yeah. Even through leadership, you'll hear guys, you know, in in leadership positions saying something like first wife, worst wife, depend upon a miss. You know, your your wives are uh, disposable. And and there's a belief in that. You're not an operator unless you're on your third. I literally heard a SEAL commander in one of my training exercises tell all the young pups, you're not a real operator until you're on your third wife. Mm. So that education doesn't play out well. In a- no, <laughs> no. Examples of, you know, long term. And there's a very high, as you both, you know, I'm sure know, infidelity rate in the um, community as well. That's one of the trainings and talks I've kind of developed that I want to be getting out at some point here, because infidelity doesn't actually doom a marriage. And if you have the will to rebuild, it can actually forge a stronger connection. But again, you have to have the right insights or it will doom the marriage. You know, it will break the trust, you know, permanently. It just depends on what you do with it when it comes to light. Um, but even with those those data, they don't have data after transition, which is really what my the figures I was given were based on is that's divorce after transition. So that people that are hitting that wall, right? 
I know many with many, many of his friends divorced. She's like, I, now listen, when we talk, she's like, I'm not a military spouse. I'm a retiree spouse, veteran whatever, spouse. veteran spouse. And, and most people are like, oh, oh, mine too, mine too, mine too. And that's that's a whole nother bridge that we have to cross. But still, it's easy because we're all humans that behave you know, similarly. So talking through these yeah. issues can still be similar versus, you know, well, if I was with a spouse that I was with for 20 years through the whole thing would still have the same problems. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up infidelity. I think that's a topic for, you know, one of our listens up with you, Doc, and, and to talk about that deeper because it it is so prevalent in this community, in the culture. And yeah. you're right. It does not have to be uh, game over. It doesn't have to be yeah. the end of us. Um, you know, Tom and I ha- are stronger for it. And I know many, many spouses who have been through the same thing who mm-hmm. Um, we're able to work, rebuild trust, and feel stronger for it. So for people listening to you, I know this plagues the community. Um, there's a lot of spouses listening now that are frankly afraid, saying, oh, shit, yeah. what if it's my guy, you know? Um, and so I love that you're bringing that training in. I love that we're talking about this culturally because it directly ties to the suicide rate, directly yeah, ties to quality of life. Tom and I talk about that, too. We talk about all the service members who have taken their life. How many are suffering? You know, what's the number on that? They're just not living a good, happy life. You know, that never will pull the trigger. It's, you know. Infidelity is a tough one because it adds a weight, a heavy, heavy weight of every day when the phone rings, you're like, or an email ding. And you're like, it's just, you know, getting caught is a horrible thing. Well, it was, it was for me, right? I have this thing where doing wrong is just, and I'm immediately sick to my stomach. Follow the rules, you know? Um, But when I was cheating, that was horrible and it weighs you down. Mm-hmm. It, it starts to destroy you. Um, but it is, it is rampant. At least where I, I I've worked. Yes, it is. It's, it's a thing that people hide. It's a thing spouses just assume is happening. So maybe mm-hmm. someone who isn't doing it is That's blamed true. for it. You know, the guy that comes home and talks about all the things that goes on on a team trip, you know, and how I don't do it, but they do it. It's probably the guy doing it. You know, it's, I've heard all these stories mm-hmm. through my time in and I, and it's something that needs addressed that everyone wants to look away from, but it doesn't do my relationship. No, yeah. um, it needs to be addressed that. directly. Right. Is there like, is there a tie to PTS and infidelity? I know we talked about the culture, yeah. culture, but is there yeah. a biological reason for it? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, so um, for, for years, I've done a blog for psychology today around kind of the development of relationships. And one of the things really there is that, Falling in love is like um, taking crack cocaine. Wow. You know, so there's like a biological piece to the allure of something that's, you know, forbidden related to those, you know, different releases of neurotransmitters. And so, you know, there's PTS, right? That's all the negative stuff that we think, oh, I don't want that, right? Who wants to not sleep well? And, you know, one of the things that I did is kind of create an altered version of the PCL. That's the standard measure of PTS that included not just the stuff people don't want in their lives, but the people they, the, the, the symptoms and things that people do want in their lives, like the adrenaline rush, the, the feeling of, you know, being in the flow with your team, like the feeling of, of closeness and emotional intimacy with your brothers and sisters in the military that, you know, you don't know if you can replicate again in other relationships. And so part of the, I don't want to lose it aspect of the warfighter path is this, this adrenaline rush. And so infidelity feeds the adrenaline rush, just like 
alcohol, drugs, and risk, you know, it's just one of many drugs, right? We could see it as that, that keeps people at a certain biological level that feels good to them. So it's very alluring for everybody, you know? And so I think it's a wrong thing to say, oh, no, I would never be tempted. What I've learned outside of the warfighter population, just from research on humans, is that we're probably all going to be tempted throughout a whole, you know, lifetime of a marriage. That's going to happen. So in my own marriage with my husband, 25 years we've been together, we never had the assumption that we're not going to either of us be tempted. Mm. What we really have had to navigate is when we get tempted, what do we do with that before it becomes a thing, right? And so that's a piece of it. But there's also after the affair, how people can heal from that and rebuild stronger if they have the will to do the work. Will to do the work. There's the there's there's the kit. That's the theme of the day. <laughs> You've got to do the work. It doesn't yeah. just flow into you through yes. osmosis. Yeah, you yeah. doing the work has to happen. Man, Doc, I could go on for I know. I have <laughs> pages of notes, so we're gonna have to save this for listen up. Um, oh my goodness, we went <laughs> I know. An hour and 15 minutes? Like I didn't saying, even realize it. I just glanced I up. I'm like, oh. I know. I know. Felt like half an hour. Oh, and there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to want more. Um, we will have in our show notes where you can find Doc Springer, her books, her information. Um, so that will all be there. Make sure that you guys are arming yourself with knowledge and information. It helps to know what's going on. Um, share those stories, like Doc said, maybe just a little bit at a time. Maybe yeah. build that trust. Slow is the pace. He's into it. Yeah. Don't dump. <laughs> don't dump all your stuff. We've, we've had people dump. Had people do that. The too. spouse like, whoa, too much at one time. So four and a half hours. So assess uh, your situation as you yes. did your entire life, right? You assess your situation. So use the tools that you have for good, right? We've heard people, I use, I've, I've used it against my wife. I'm like, oh, now you're telling your brain, your spouse is the enemy. So don't do that. Um, But yeah, use your tools for good, right? And, and listen mm-hmm. up and and always, always try to help other people. Thank you so much for everything you're, you're doing for the community. Um, it's so appreciated, so needed, and we're grateful to have you on today. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Doc. Thank you both. We appreciate your time today. Remember to not keep all this goodness to yourself. Share it out. It's your duty to your brothers, your friends, and your family members. If you're a special operations warrior or a special operations warrior family member, please visit us at allsecurefoundation.org for support. And if you're interested in donating, that's a great place to find us as well. We really appreciate you. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.